0: Sarah. Hi Alison. So unless you live under a rock or you were deliberately ignoring the news for the past couple of weeks, you'll know that the Queen of England Elizabeth II, your queen as it were, (laughs) died and was buried in a huge ceremony this week.
1: So a Apparently, the queen woke up every single morning to the sound of bagpipes. Wow. She, yeah, And she had an, an official uh, pipe player. Mm. And so th- this, we've just been hearing there, um, Major Paul Burns, the, her official pipe player who, mm. who played during the funeral. Yeah, it was, it was a huge ceremony. It was, and very, very traditional. and It lasted several hours. It was carried live on many French TV and radio stations, you know, and, and some 8 million people in, here in France apparently tuned in.
0: Wow. Yeah, and it's impressive. I mean, given, right, it was a weekday, it mm. was Monday, it wasn't a back bank holiday here like it was in the UK. Um, the French have a soft spot for Elizabeth and I mean I think for the British monarchy in general. Yeah they
1: do Um, as a Brit I was quite surprised you know by the the level of interest here I had some French friends who I hadn't been in touch with for quite a while they were sending me messages saying oh my my deepest condolences Mm. for the death of your queen you know as if somehow they wanted to connect to to this occasion Um, some people told me that they were you know really fascinated by all the ceremonial side you know the the pomp and so circumstance,
0: but, you know, very happy that they didn't have to foot the bill. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Um, I I was interested in this so-called fascination with the Queen and the monarchy, given, of course, that France is the land of the revolution Mm. and throughout its monarchy, 1789. Um, I got in touch with Catherine Marshall, a professor of British history and politics at Sergi Paris University. She told me she wrote her PhD thesis on a man named Walter Budget, a Victorian-era journalist who wrote The English Constitution, in which he pointed out that British political leaders had actually looked to France and its revolution to try to think about how the British parliament should coexist with the monarchy, basically not doing what France did. Mm. Um, And she told me that reflecting on the French reaction to Queen Elizabeth's death was an interesting exercise for her. She's a French woman, despite her name, Catherine Marshall. Um, she usually looks to Britain, but not really to her own
2: country. I do feel that that was a great love of the Queen herself. She was the link with de Gaulle. And so what has happened with her death is the passing of the Second Elizabethan Age, what is essentially the passing of the post-war period.
0: But de Gaulle is interesting, right, because he started the Fifth Republic installing this position of the president in France, which he very specifically linked with a king, right? He even said, you know, the French need a king, and I'm going to make this president position, one of a regalian position. And we even now talk, Macron has even himself talked about it, or Macron has been compared to a king. Um, and, And I actually, interestingly, I was reading back on interviews, somebody like pointed out that in 2015, Macron himself, he was finance minister at the time, even said that French democracy is incomplete, because what's missing is the figure of the king. So it's interesting that you say there's this connection between Elizabeth and de Gaulle, and de Gaulle then introduces this sort of king-like presidency to France.
2: In fact... Again, I have to go back to Badgett. Badgett said that uh, if you had uh, in the English Constitution what was a disguised republic, the French had a disguised monarchy, and I think Badgett had completely captured the reality of what our life in France is all about. Is that in some sort of way we did get rid of our king, we did have a revolution, but fundamentally it's just as if the French were not totally at ease with the fact that they had done this, Macron has understood in the way that de Gaulle had understood that the French do need a sort of figure to look up to. Why do the French need someone to look up to?
0: I mean, that's something we say and that's something that de Gaulle has analyzing, and as you said, Macron, but, you know, what is it
2: about? If I were to try and, and understand looking at uh, the monarchy in Britain, what is so extraordinary with the figure of the monarch in Britain is that you've got a head of state, but what is most important is the head of nation. The head of the nation and of the nations of the Commonwealth. And so, what you've got in France is perhaps this aspect which is missing that we've got a head of state, but we haven't got all the intensity of the head of the nation who is supposed to be morally upright, who is supposed to guide the nation with a family. And so, If I had to try and explain this, the reason why we were so captured by the funeral and by the processions and by the traditions is because, in fact, it's showing us something that we have lost. We have lost it, but we said we didn't want it. But fundamentally, perhaps we did want it.
0: I I feel like in all of this, there's this sort of profound nostalgia that, you know, if I'm going to get political here, you see it sort of echoed a lot in the discourse of the right and the far right in France of sort of the good old days of France and even colonialism when France had an empire or a bigger one than it has today. On some level, if you think of it in those terms, it's kind of deeply conservative.
2: I'm not sure that the French would want the return of a monarchy. I'm pretty certain they wouldn't. But in fact, they admire the fact that you kept one. That's different. And what is also interesting is the fact that what you're saying about this conservative understanding of what is essentially the crown, I mean, does have an impact on what the French believe in, because obviously enough, the whole point of the French Revolution was opposing conservative values. It was creating something which was based on something else than a family having been on the throne. So... In some sort of way, Burke, in Reflections on the Revolution in France, talking about what had happened and and what he could perceive as what would be the episode of the terror, really described very well how an idea, which was an idea of the Enlightenment, ended up crushing, because what had been removed was also the framework of the state. In the end, after the Revolution, the French spent a century unstable. And in fact, you can only think about a sort of stabilization after 1870 and the creation of the Third Republic, which then goes on until 1940. But it's true that you have a whole century in which you've got, you know, two republics, you've got two empires, you've got countless types of monarchies. It's all awfully complicated for the French to actually regain some form of stability after the the French Revolution. So perhaps there is a sort of nostalgia also for what was perceived as a stable regime, but it was also a regime which was very much criticized. So on top of it all, the fact that Queen Elizabeth II died conveniently 70 years after her her becoming queen means that we will have an Elizabethan age, which is marked by the the post-war period, which was marked by decolonization, the creation of the welfare state. And essentially what you are having today is the end of that post-war settlement in which we are really thinking, are we getting out of the welfare state? And so you have got a sort of arresting moment of somebody who, who, who was a figure, a key figure. And this is, you know, we are out into the open sea and what is coming next?
0: So what you're saying is this, the British monarchy has this this position in history, but this queen in particular has this very particular historical point. I mean, is this the end, perhaps, of France's obsession with the British monarchy, because this is the queen that really held people's attention?
2: It's really a love and hate affair. I mean, one is always fascinated by the difference of the others, thinking, okay, let's look at how they're doing this. We can never do the funeral you've done on Monday, nor can we do the procession. Because it would be perceived, first of all, as being a huge amount of money being spent on something that would not be acceptable, especially at a time of massive crisis. The second thing is that it would be perceived as being too grandiose, and they would be very much criticized as being something that we don't do in France because, in fact, we got rid of our monarchy. So it's this problem of actually looking... And being fascinated and at the same time thinking, I'd rather not have it, but I'm pleased looking at it on the other side. But it doesn't change the fact, though, that I'm truly convinced that the love and the admiration for Elizabeth II was real in France. Will Charles, King Charles III be able to have such a huge amount of love, compassion? I'm not certain. But at the same time, um, I think the same questions are being asked in Britain. Entre le marteau et l'enclume, les plumes se barricadent derrière leur une. La liberté qui a laissé les plumes. Journaliste incarcéré, journaliste assassiné.
0: So journalists around the world are facing threats for basically just doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. Physical threats of violence or or being put in prison for, you know, describing the world around them and reporting the truth.
1: And when it gets too difficult, well, they sometimes have to leave uh, their countries, drop everything and go into exile. And they often find themselves alone Mm -hmm. uh, with no family or friends. So they become isolated, both professionally and personally.
0: Yeah, so after meeting many exiled foreign journalists here in France, the public radio journalist Danielle O'Hallon realised there was a need to support them and she co-founded the Maison des Journalistes, the journalist's house which opened its doors 20 years ago in May 2002 and is celebrating its 20th anniversary this week.
1: It's a unique place, isn't it Sarah? It's Mm. this large converted factory building in Paris' 15th arrondissement, literally just uh, like 200 metres from where we are now. Yeah. Uh, It's got 14 individual rooms and then a common space for the exiled journalists to spend up to six months basically getting themselves settled
0: into France. Yeah, they have access to psychological help, support to apply for asylum, they get French lessons over the last two decades some 480 journalists have come through from 75 countries so the Maison des Journalistes kind of serves as a mirror of the state of press freedom in the world at any given moment. So in 2011, there were a lot of Syrian journalists at the start of the war there. Mm-hmm. Last year, the Maison des Journalistes welcomed Afghan journalists, um, many of whom worked for French media and found themselves in trouble when the Taliban took power. And then, of course, today, there's a, a flow of Ukrainian and Russian journalists after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in, in February. One of the current residents is Simon Suleimani. He's a 34-year-old Kurdish journalist who was born in Turkey. He's been at the Maison des Journalistes for six months. He's been working for Kurdish as well as international media and was jailed by Turkey for over a year in 2017. He left in 2019, traveled through the Balkans, and ended up here in France. He told our colleagues at RFI's Atelier des Medias that he has found a community at the Maison des Journalistes even with Turkish
2: journalists. You become a family, Afghans, Kurds and Turks. Me, as
0: a Kurdish political journalist, considered a terrorist by the Turkish government. Here we become one family. We cook together, we eat together. There are 16 journalists in the Maison des Journalistes and each has a different story. There is a common subject, which is the difficulty of being a journalist at home. pays, par exemple, tout le monde. Everyone is looking for freedom of the press here in France, the land of liberty, which welcomes us and gives us the chance to speak. With digital tools, we can continue our jobs as journalists on YouTube and Twitter. beaucoup de I know many journalists who broadcast the news from their friends in their home
2: countries.
0: Because here it is secure.
1: France is a safe place to work as a journalist, isn't it, Sarah? Even if uh, President Macron seems to to want to control his messaging uh, rather a lot.
0: Yeah, recently there was an interesting situation where he gave a press conference to about 100 journalists, but it was nearly all off the record. Mm. (laughs) But of course, this is nowhere near the level of countries where you just risk jail time or worse for just writing an article. Um, Darlene Coutier, who is the current director of the Maison des Journalistes, would like to repeat the model elsewhere. For now, it's really unique. There's nothing else quite like it in the world, but she'd like to see other structures like this in France and Europe to form a kind of network because journalists will continue to need help.
1: So the war in Ukraine shows no real signs of coming to an end. And while they're not in the firing line, the Ukrainians and Russians here in France are clearly very concerned about the situation. Yeah, we've talked in the podcast about how France has been welcoming refugees from Ukraine. That's ongoing. The Russian diaspora in France is a lot bigger than the Ukrainian mm. one. There are around 53,000 Russian born people here. It includes a lot of intellectuals who fled the Russian Revolution in the early 20th century. Then there was another wave uh, after World War II, and then more recently after the breakup of the Soviet Union, which meant that Russian people could travel just so much more easily.
0: Yeah, so it's a lot of people. Perhaps not all of them have the same point of
1: view when it comes to the war in Ukraine. There are some Putin supporters, Mm. and France has taken measures to seize the assets of oligarchs, for example. But... Many Russian artists are against the war in Ukraine. And artists and intellectuals have been welcomed here in in France for generations. Um, There are some very strong cultural links between France and Russia, and they go back a long way, Uh, notably, for example, to the late 18th century, when the French Enlightenment philosopher Denis Diderot went to St. Petersburg to have big, intense discussions with Catherine the Great. Ah. Uh, He ended up spending around four months there. And that mutual admiration, if you like, in all the arts, whether it's literature, painting, and of course, classical music, Music has continued to today.
0: But, of course, there were calls for a cultural boycott right after the invasion of Ukraine in February.
1: Yeah, there was a notable case, uh, Tugan Sukiev, who's music director of both the Bolshoi and France's National Orchestra in Toulouse. He was under a lot of pressure to denounce President Putin's invasion. He didn't want to, and he preferred to resign from both posts. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, despite Ukrainian opposition, the Russian filmmaker Kirill Serebrennikov attended this year's camp film festival so overall doesn't seem to have been as much uh, cancelling of Russian artists here in France as in the UK for example. Why why do you think that is? Well I wonder it may have something to do with the fact that France puts huge importance on the arts in general Mm. and maybe also because of these deep cultural ties to Russia in particular at least that's the impression I had But it's good to get a first-hand opinion. So I sat down with Masha Schmidt, a Russian-born artist in her home in Paris. She studied at the Academy of Art in Moscow and came here to carry on her studies in 1990. So just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. She was only 22 and she lived a kind of artist dream for many years. Things have become a lot more difficult since the war in Ukraine. But before we got to talk about the drama, she told me first about this seismic shift, moving away from the Soviet Union's strong figurative tradition in art to something a bit more abstract and impressionist.
3: My time in Moscow Academies, we weren't practicing this abstract way of painting, neither thinking. So when I came to Paris, I felt like I was a very old person because I I was painting like, you know, an academist of... uh, like 19th or even 18th century. But I started little by little to take off my knowledge, if I may say so. I had this amazing moment. I could all of a sudden try to find some truthful feeling. I wanted to feel. I didn't want to know.
1: Why France? Was it because you already had a kind of Francophile culture? Well, for someone who is practising Painting In the
3: end of the 20th century, France is a absolutely crucial point. I mean, you can't avoid impressionism, actually. I mean, professionally, you couldn't say, OK, I don't like <laughs> French art. So, of course, I was uh, kind of in love with uh, French art. That's very true. Afterwards, my situation was funny, because coming from... Uh, this Soviet environment, going outside—imagine it—that it was like it, we were coming from, from I don't know, Mars or Venus or from from the Moon. That was very inexplicably crazy to imagine that you can go physically go to the Louvre Museum, see and experience everything you could not imagine
1: to be able to see in your life. Had you grown up with this image of France as the place to be as an artist? I guess it's always a place to be as an artist.
3: I will recommend France. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody who likes art, yes, it's a place to be. As for me, it was more about, I guess, my destiny. I live in France with my husband, whom I love deeply. He's a Georgian pianist, but coming from Moscow to France around early 90s also. I married him here, and uh, so we still do our art. He's playing his music, and I'm making my painting.
1: (laughs) Sounds like a fairy tale. Masha Schmidt and her husband, Irakli Avaliani, have indeed carved out successful careers in music, art, film, and many other projects. But when Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, that fairy tale turned sour.
3: Oh, it was definitely
1: a terrible moment. Everything stopped. Like
3: I was crying day and night. My my friends, people whom I love, all of
1: us, we were devastated. For the first time since she arrived in France 32 years ago, Masha Schmidt became defined by her Russianness. Until the 23rd of February, I thought I was a person.
3: I thought I was an artist and, and I was in love with very,
1: very various world cultures and arts. But I was forced to feel like I'm Russian. The start reminder came first from the caretaker in her building, a woman from former Yugoslavia who'd become a close friend. Five days after it started, when
3: she was waiting for me downstairs, I had absolutely red eyes and I was, you know, probably I had such an inexplicable expression that she understood that I was crying all the time. And she gave me her very special and, you know, warm hug. And she said, Masha, I'm so sorry. I must apologize. I was like, what's wrong? And she was like, um, I thought you were Russian for all these years. I thought you were Russian. I was like, and? And now I know you're a Ukrainian. And I was like, what? That was the first time I told someone I was Russian. I said, no, I'm Russian. I'm sorry, but I'm against the war. And she was so confused. I don't know if I must say I am this or I am that. I would like to say that I am a human being. It's a crazy situation that we must take parts. Well, I will take my part. (laughs) I think that the most important part is not where you were born, but but what do you think and what do you do?
1: Masha found she could no longer paint. I felt that
3: uh, all these things I was doing, I mean paintings and my art projects, everything was not really necessary I mean, nothing had any sense anymore uh, in front of the horror, actually. I mean, why would you, like, paint your beautiful
1: paintings when people are dying? That was my dilemma. She looked for a way to be useful and started collecting medicines and clothes to give to charities for Ukraine. It seemed like it was a necessary and uh, immediate thing to do. And afterwards, very
3: quickly, we understood that uh, the point was not, you know, small things and pampers and clothes, but money. Artists very often don't have enough money to be a,
1: a real donor, but they have their art. She and some fellow artists founded the Peace and War Project, a modern-day nod to the Tolstoy novel War and Peace. They set up a website where donors to charities helping Ukraine, like the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders, could receive an original piece of artwork as a kind of thank-you present. And I was thinking that if somebody
3: is doing something good, sending money to help people in this horrible situation, someone should say you are a good person. We were just sending a work of art, a painting and drawing, maybe even a sculpture, to these donors. They could choose something, some present from some artists they don't know, but they like very much. This was all about connection between people. You could also share something. I mean, at least this will to stop the horror
1: and to start working on peace process. Russian oligarchs in France with links to President Putin have had their assets and bank accounts frozen. But that's also happened to some ordinary Russians, too. And the concerts of some Russian classical musicians have been cancelled. Schmidt says she feels privileged she hasn't had to face this. But she understands to an extent why it's happened to some of the more big-name artists. It concerns very much the big events and the
3: big cultural institutions for example orchestras some conductors there were a number of um, for example movie festivals festival um, Fleur, and things like that so people organizing those events were facing the war and it was very sudden so they were probably not prepared and they couldn't think of uh, i don't know releasing any russian movie right immediately now under the bombs you know it's like I think that one could understand that this reaction was a reaction to something
1: absolutely enormous still she finds it hard to imagine that russia's contribution to the arts will somehow fade away in france it can't disappear
3: i mean it can't be cancelled because of it is so connected to so many fields of the french art scene the russian cultural impact (laughs) in France is historical actually. That's why probably French people still do like Russian literature and I don't know, music and uh, probably ballet. This story is very old, this history is important. I hope that uh, Tchaikovsky will survive. I mean, he, he didn't invade Ukraine, honestly. Not him, not Pushkin, whom I love very much they are here. I don't know if it's forever, but they have the, the place in this mosaic.
1: Now, and we finish with uh, a piece by Tchaikovsky, uh, played by Masha Schmidt's husband, Irakli Avaliani. the end of Spotlight on France. Uh, We're a production of Radio France International.
0: This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompéani. If you have any comments about the episode or if you want to get in touch with us in general, send us an email, spotlight.france at rfi.fr or find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And you can
1: find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, October the 6th. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison.